0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We're launching a new sermon series. Usually we walk through the Bible verse by verse but we're doing something different this time. We're walking through the Bible, actually, book by book. And sometimes we'll even explore many books together at the same time. And this is so we'll actually make it through to Revelation before you know, like my kids graduate. So we're going to do this. So we're going to work through this entire Bible together. We're calling this series Table Read because a table read is when players in a drama sit down around a table. And they read the script together. And this is the way that the actors and actresses. Understand the bigger picture of the drama. This is how they understand even their role. And how it fits into the larger story. Well I hope we actually believe. That the Bible is the true story of the world. A divine drama in which two things are true. Jesus is the hero. And you and I actually have a vital Heart to play. And if this is true, then we should do our best to sit down and get to know the script. In other words, we have to have a table read. And this morning we are going to table read the very first act, the ancient book of Genesis. But first, let's just pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing, would it be acceptable to you? You are our rock, and you are our redeemer, which means, Lord, as we encounter your word this morning, you speak to us as our redeemer. You speak to us because you tenderly care for us, and by the Holy Spirit, would our hearts actually see the risen Jesus? Would we see you, Lord? So that by the time this message is over, our hearts would be singing, because of who you are, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I have a new window in my kitchen, as Luke mentioned. A few months ago, I would stand at my sink and I would stare into a wall when I was doing dishes or washing my hands. Now, I get to stare through this brand new window and see my entire backyard. The only problem with this new setup, I mean, it's amazing. The only problem is that I get to stand... And see my entire backyard. Let me explain. I see everything that's wrong with it. I see the dirt patches. I see the weeds, and most of all, I see my poor garage. If you've been, if you've seen my garage before, you you know what I'm talking about. See, a few years ago, I actually got a notice from City of Grandview Heights <laughs> saying your garage needs some work, man. <laughs> And so your very own pastoral intern, Wes Peel, this was before you he headed out to Philly, came over and he helped me throw a fresh coat of paint over the top of this thing. But sadly, that fresh coat of paint is no only fresh, that was about three years ago. And honestly, no matter how much fresh paint I throw in that thing, it doesn't matter. It'll always be in bad shape. See, even with my glasses off, if I'm washing my hands, looking out that window, I see this giant crack going right through the center of this Garage. See, when they built this thing, they didn't allow the ground to settle. So they set the concrete foundation, and then they built the concrete walls and the roof, and then the whole structure, apparently, just split in two. (laughs) If you just look at the concrete floor, there is a giant crack down the middle, so what happened is the walls followed suit. You know, that makes sense. The original builder... Therefore, fill this crack with concrete filler. A lot of it. And today I'm trying, you know, to paint over it. But it doesn't really matter. The sad truth is that this structure probably just needs to go down. It certainly can't be built upon. And I challenge you to do pull ups on the rafters. That would be hard too. The famous author and Oxford medievalist C.S. Lewis he once compared the Christian life to doing a long division math problem. When you realize that your work is off, it makes no sense whatsoever to keep on solving, does it? You need to erase and start over. Sometimes the build up you have to tear down, just like my garage. And so it is with God. It makes no sense to keep building a life with God if the foundation is cracked down the middle. The foundation. And this is why it's so important to spend time on the basics, the foundations. I like how theologian Kelly Capish puts it. He writes, Do we want to worship the true God or waste time and effort on a deity we have constructed in our own image? This is essential for the sake of loving God. This is essential even for the sake of loving neighbor. Kelly Capitch quotes Carolyn Curtis Jones, who writes, Whether our theology is good or flawed, those we love most will be the first to feel it. Well, that's why we need to return, and return often to the book of Genesis. Genesis means actually beginning. And if we build our life on God that are not anchored in this book of beginnings, then we might be, as Capage puts it, wasting our time with a God of our own making. And that's what Genesis is for us. And that's actually what it was to the ancient people of God, too. You see, Genesis was not given uh, to us in a vacuum, it was actually given to Moses from God. This man named Moses, who we'll meet next week when we explore. The book of Exodus was called by God really to pastor a group of people who only knew dehumanizing slavery and Egypt's gods, which upheld it. And they were living for generations with the wrong story of the world. And they were given a script, but the script was false, which is why God sets them straight in the very first chapter. Of Genesis, God says decisively, these so-called Egyptian gods, like the sun, is my creation. No gods at all, but something I made. And you are not slaves of Egypt, but all humans bear my image. And that's just chapter 1. See, Genesis is a reset, and this morning we're going to look at some of the key features of Genesis. It's kind of absurd, actually, to imagine that we could cover all of Genesis in the small sermon. If I spent one minute on one chapter, we'd be here for 50 minutes. That's not okay. I would love to maybe sit down and unpack this over coffee, some of the details of this book. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to look at two things, really the general shape of Genesis and then the story, the general story of Genesis, and how we fit in to it. Does that sound like a plane? So that's how we're going to approach this. First, the shape, the general shape of Genesis. You can roughly divide Genesis into two sections. Chapters of 1 through 11, and chapters 12 through 50. And so we can call this first section, 1 through 11... The beginnings of the world, and we can call this next section, 12 through 50, the beginnings of God's rescue. And so if we just start with the shape of the first 11 chapters, we understand the beginnings of the world. So chapters 1 and 2, if you have a Bible, we can just sort of scan our eyes over the text, and see what's going on. Chapters 1 and 2 describe the creation of the whole cosmos, including Adam and Eve. And these chapters pastorally answer the kinds of questions that God's people were asking after generations of, as I said, dehumanizing slavery. Questions like, who is the true God, if it's not fair? Who is the true me, if I'm not a slave? And who made the world, after all? And then chapters 3 through 5 introduce sin and death. These chapters answer the question, what is wrong with the world? Why is life so hard? Why is there so much death? And why has my life been nothing but injustice? Why are people mean? Why is my life a mess? And then we get into chapter 6. Through 9, which has been described as a decreation and a recreation. God seems to start over after all of this chaos and all of this destruction of sin. And this time, not with Adam and Eve, but with Noah and his family and all of the animals. And so, for a brief moment, the world seems to rewind to Genesis 1, and God, in a sense, recreates. But then we go to to chapters 10 through 11, which show us that despite this do-over, sin is stubborn and persists. Where we see the Tower of Babel, Where humanity rejects the path of humility before God and before others and build a tower. That's the beginning of God's world. And that's the first 11 chapters. It's giant in scope. And honestly, things don't look bright by the time we hit the end of it. But then something happens in chapter 12. This is a pivotal chapter in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bible, you should turn there. The first three verses are so important. A man named Abram is living his best life in Mesopotamia. But then God interrupts this life and says, you're going to be the father of a giant multitude of people, and this is how I'm going to fix all that is broken with the world. She's audacious. It's going to start with you. And then it's going to start with your family. And this is how I am going to actually fix the world. And so from this moment on, we basically read about the growth of this family. And if you've ever read Genesis, it isn't pretty. And we would be right to ask the question if we're reading Genesis, are you sure, God? This family? But each birth story carries forward God's promise to fix the world. So we have in chapters 12 through 20. Really the telling of Abraham's life. Abram becomes Abraham. Important events in his life. Are like the many promises that God makes. Over and over again to Abraham. Or covenants they're called. The unlikely birth of a son. Because if God's going to fix the world through his family. It's a problem that they can't have children. So we have this unlikely birth of a son named Isaac. In chapter 21. And then this sort of shocking test. From God to offer this child of promise and the provision from God for a a sacrificial ram. That's all in chapters 12 through 20. And then if we look at chapters 21 through 26, we learn more about this son named Isaac. And some highlights here are his marriage to Rebekah in chapter 24 and the birth of their twins, Esau and Jacob. And then in chapters 27 through 37, we read the life story of Jacob. Jacob's life, like his name, means in the Hebrew is a life of struggle. He struggles against his twin brother Esau. He tricks Esau into getting his firstborn birthright. He finds a wife that struggles against her dad. And then Jacob runs off, sort of in fear of his twin brother Esau's revenge. But on the eve of his encounter, he struggles again. This time with the Lord. and He's given a new name, Israel. Which takes us to the final section of Genesis 38 through 50, the life of Joseph. So, Joseph is one of Jacob's 12 sons. And he is essentially sold into slavery of Egypt. Now, remember who's receiving this? It's God's people who were in slavery of Egypt, who had just been rescued by the Exodus. And Joseph is essentially sold into slavery to Egypt by his own brothers, and yet somehow rises to prominence in Pharaoh's court, and helps them plan for a famine. Meanwhile, his treacherous brothers are starving, so they go to Egypt, they encounter Joseph unknowingly, who they thought they left for dead in a pit. But Joseph surprisingly reconciles with them. And so Genesis ends with the death of Joseph. And it's not a super satisfying ending. Especially when you're told at the very beginning that God made this world and he made it good. Especially when you're told in chapter 12 that God is going to fix the world. You're left with this sense of hunger. How on earth is that going to happen? But that's how it ends. Joseph is buried. Things seem just as jacked up as before. And so we're left with a question mark. That's the shape of Genesis. The last time I was on an airplane, I brought a book with me on music theory. That's that's me, folks. If you don't know me, that's me. I'm kind of a nerd like that. Um, I just said, it would be fun to just read about music theory while I'm on an airplane. And I meant it. Okay, that's me. And it was a strange experience, though, because I was learning facts about music, fascinating facts about music and how music sort of works in the Western world, but without an instrument to play. Well, that's how this sermon would be if I just stopped right now. We'd have some interesting Bible facts about God His Word. I mean, if I prayed and said, Amen, this is who God is, amen, then we would all leave having had maybe an okay Sunday school lesson. But that's it. See, it's one thing to have facts about God. It's another thing to know where we fit into those facts. And that's what the second point is, the story of Genesis. And if this is a table read in which we all have a part to play, then we need to be asking the question, where do we fit into this ancient story? That's where we're headed now. So we know the shape of Genesis. Let's try to put the pieces together into a story. So Michael Williams, he summarizes the whole Bible, as I said last week, and as I say often, with nine words. He summarizes the whole Bible with nine words. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. And it strikes me as I'm preparing this message that that indeed could also be The story of Genesis. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. So first, God made it. Think about this. The very first takeaway from Genesis is that God made the world. God made everything that is. He is creator. And everything else, seen and unseen, is His creation. He made it all. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is an all-encompassing statement. Theologians have called this the creator-creation distinction. And there is a hard line between creator and creation. This means we're made for God. How do we fit into this story? Well, it just means that anything of creation that we seek to fulfill us, anything, good things even, things like career, things like family, things like marriage... Things like children, things like sports, whatever you're gifted at in your pursuit of that, all of these things, if we are seeking what only the Creator can provide, then we have what the Bible calls idolatry. Do you understand, idolatry does not make any sense whatsoever unless God is God and we are not. And all of creation exists to revolve around the orbit of the Creator. And when we get that off, that's called idolatry. And what actually is happening, who's seen the gyroscope spin on a rope? What happens is when that center of gravity, the Lord Himself, the Creator, gets knocked off, then everything falls apart. And that's maybe what we're experiencing today in our lives. We're stealing worship from God and we're fueling something called idolatry. He made it all. But secondly, we learn right away from Genesis that he made it good. Everything that God made is good. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And at the end of it all, when he creates humanity, he says, it's very good. And this is an important takeaway for some of you. Especially those of us who have been nursed on Star Wars. What do I mean? Star Wars presents a universe in which there is eternal bad and eternal good. And they're duking it out. And, and hopefully the good wins. And sometimes we import that into our Bibles. So that we think that there's Satan and demons. that are eternally bad. And then there's God and angels. And they're eternally good. And they're duking it out. And Jesus wins. And that is not what Genesis teaches. Genesis teaches that there was absolutely God. And God alone. For all of eternity. And then he spoke all of existence. And he called it good. That means there is nothing that is inherently bad in all of creation. We take creation in our sin and we twist it. And we contort it. And so that's why earlier, when we take amazing good gifts from God and we make them God, that's when they can turn haywire. But it does not mean marriage is bad, or your jobs are bad, or the sports you're good at are bad, or your major is bad. Just because we are putting God weight onto it. No, no, no. God says it is good. He made it good. God's creation is good because God made it, and God doesn't make junk. Amen? God does not make junk. Third, we see right away that He made us, and He made us in His image. This is an unbelievable statement in the ancient Near East. Scholars have helped me see this, that women and men are equally in God's image. In those days, only pharaohs imaged the divine. And that would have been the script that they were living in. (laughs) But here God tells the true story. All humans mysteriously reflect God to the world. They have inherent dignity and worth. As Jamar Martinsby puts it, he says, we don't give somebody dignity ever. We acknowledge it. Image bears. That's what we are. So God made it. That's the first three words of the summary or the story of Genesis. What are the next three words? We broke it. And this, frankly, is the hard to ignore reality in the book of Genesis and really just the rest of the book. It's been pointed out that the Bible somehow goes out of its way to accentuate the reality of our brokenness. It doesn't hide it at all. Because in chapter 3, we see that our parents rebel against God, unleashing sin and death into this good world. God made it, yes. He made it good, yes. But we broke it. It's broken by sin. So in chapter 3, something intrudes the story. Distrust and deception enter the story. And shame. The Bible later calls all this stuff uh, sin and how it orbits around sin. So according to Cornelius Plantinga, sin is not the way it's supposed to be. I love that definition of sin. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be. If God made it good, that is shalom. Hebrew word shalom. Everything relationally leaning into each other in a beautiful pattern of beauty. And yet sin comes and wrecks that tapestry. And that's what we have with sin. We're created to make much of God. We're created to make much of others. We're created as, as image bearers to reflect the glory of God to Himself and to each other, and it's a beautiful, beautiful image. And yet we take that and we turn it on ourselves and we serve ourselves. We don't serve the Lord. We don't bless others. And that's the source, Scripture says, of all of our problems in life. We are created to make much of God and others, but instead our parents put themselves at the center of the universe. And what that gy- gyroscope teaches us? When we're in the center, everything spirals out of control. Broken by sin. And then also broken by death. So that by chapter 4 of Genesis, the firstborn child in the history of the world turns out to be a murderer. Homicide. Actually, fratricide. <laughs> That's what it would be. Because it was his brother. Murder's broken. I mean, that is right at the beginning of our script. Murder. That's, that's, just let that sink in for a second. Broken by death. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so that in chapter 5, you have this litany of death. Over and over and over again, you see these strange names and birthdays and all this stuff. And that's usually, as we're reading the Bible, we're kind of like, what do we do with this? But the thing that I think we're supposed to highlight in this is the and he died. And he died and he died, 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 and died, Andy died. he keeps on going and going and going. And as somebody who's reading, you're like, okay, death is not in the original picture. And he died over and over again. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. See, God made it, we broke it, but here's the image that we need to walk away with. The story of Genesis says, Jesus fixes it. Now, Jesus isn't mentioned explicitly by name in the book of Genesis, but the promise that is Jesus, very much so it is. There's an amazing thread that runs through the entire book. It starts in Genesis 3, actually, right where the sin sort of epicenter happens with Adam and Eve, and it runs all the way through to chapter 50 with the death of Joseph, which we'll look into in a second. And that is this, that God will intervene to make things right. Do you remember the creator and the creation and how there was a giant line between the two? Well, Genesis adds to that picture. As Dr. Williams would put it, there's a giant arrow pointing down from the top to the bottom. God intervenes. God draws near. God rescues the creation he loves. And that includes you and me, friends. As I said, Jesus is never mentioned by name in this book, but he's on every single page. Jesus fixes what we broke with his birth. Throughout all of Genesis, God keeps making a promise that he will fix the world with an offspring. And in an important sense, this is about the formation of Israel. Okay, this group of people who are saved by God to save others, who are blessed by God to bless others, who are rescued by God to rescue others, who are loved by God to love others. Do you see? The, do you see a theme? And so there's a sense in which God is saying, My Israel, my son, my people are meant to be a part of the solution. And yet, in an important sense, this promised offspring or this promised seed is not God's people, but God's son, Jesus. Paul says in Galatians, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who Paul says is Christ. Isn't that amazing? So when God keeps choosing the unlikely offsprings of Genesis, like the second-borns, for instance, Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Judah, not Reuben, or through women who cannot conceive, like Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, God is preparing us for Christmas. Do you believe that? God is preparing you for Christmas when God's own Son is born in the most unlikely way and in the most most unlikely place. God's ways are upside down to our expectations. Jesus fixes it with His birth. He also fixes it with His death. Genesis helps us see how Jesus fixes everything with His death so that in Genesis 3.15, you should take a look at this if you have your Bible. God responds to Adam and Eve's sin with a promise I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent, okay? I will put enmity between you, snake, and the woman. Between your offspring, snake, and her offspring. Her offspring, God says, will crush your head. And you, snake, will bite his heel. If you're a visual person, just picture that And hold that image. Because what it's saying is, God is saying in the very third chapter of the story, something that John picks up on in the very last chapter of our story. Do you see it? One day there will be a man born... From the line of Eve. We will crush the serpent. Amen. And in doing so. We'll bleed. Even die. But that is the victory of God. And that death doesn't hold. Jesus will crush the serpent's head. And will be wounded in doing so. He is the wounded healer. We see this wounded healer all through Genesis. Do you remember Jacob? We talked about Jacob for a minute. He was Isaac's only son who was spared by a ram. Which is a lamb, by the way. That was like a mind-blowing realization. We always talk about the ram in the thicket. If you've been to Sunday school. Did you know a ram is a male lamb? I mean, some of you do. We're the 4-H building, for goodness sake. I should know this. <laughs> lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The wounded we are. Right there with Jacob. Do you remember Joseph? (laughs) He was literally buried in the ground by his brothers. And left for dead. But he rises. Amen? He rises. And he offers bread to the nations. And when his treacherous brothers. That's you and me. Come. What does Joseph do? He sets a table for them. He weeps for them, and for their homecoming. The wounded healer is on every page of Genesis. Jesus fixes it with his death. He also fixes it with new creation. I think Genesis prepares us to see that Jesus will come to make all things right. He will not scrap what God has made. As I said, God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. That means he fixes it with his birth. Yes, that means he fixes it with his death. We just talked about, but it also means he fixes it with his resurrection because when he rises from the dead, he is demonstrating to the watching world that death does not win and that his resurrection body is just the beginning of a future harvest. As surely as Jesus is risen, so all who are in Jesus will rise and also so all that is made by God will be made new. That is called new creation. And we see a hint of this. We see even a shout of this in the book of Genesis with Noah and the flood. Because after this flood, God says something. He says, this will never happen again. And what does God rescue? He doesn't just rescue the soul of Noah, but the whole body and the whole family and even the animals. And God says, I will never do this again. And so when the waters part, we see new creation. And that is, friends, a foretaste of the new creation to come. When all will be made new. And all will be made new by Jesus. One of my favorite things to do uh, is to watch a YouTube series from a guitar store in California. I told you. I told you. If you're new here, this is what you're getting into. Um, this store is called Norm's Rare Guitars. And in it, this YouTube series, an employee takes you to their storehouse and opens up a really old guitar a rare guitar. His name, Norm's Rare Guitars, okay? This really old guitar, and he talks about it, and he plays it. And it's one of my favorite things. And what I love about it is that you could argue that all of these rare guitars should be pitched and thrown away. Because they're cracked, they're dinged, they're discolored, they're disfigured. But they aren't pitched. Not by Norm's Rare Guitars, No. They're cherished. These folks see the art in it. They see the craftsmanship in them. And by restoring them, these guitars have more value, not less. Just look at the prices. <laughs> okay? These things are valuable because they were made beautifully. And so is God's creation. So are you. So are you. Genesis tells us all of creation, including you and me, is good, very good. And when creation doesn't rotate around God... Like the planets rotate around the sun, everything gets thrown off, yes. But God's going to fix it with Jesus. He restores our relationship to God with His Son, Jesus. He restores all of creation with His Son, Jesus. So that all that is broken by the fall, every dimension of, of the world that we experience is broken by the fall, will be restored by Jesus. Why? Because God doesn't make junk. And He loves what He makes. And he wants to see it restored. That's the story. And that's the shape of Genesis. I want to close our time just being very practical, very briefly. If this is our script, what does it mean for you? I have three quick recommendations or suggestions. You need Genesis in your script if you are feeling frustrated at work or in your studies. Because Genesis tells you three things. Number one, your work matters. Genesis 1 and 2, before sin enters into the picture, we see that God creates work. That means work. That means doing hard things like gardening or like finance. Whatever it is, is not a result of the fall. And so whatever it is that you are studying, if you're a student at Ohio State, if you're a student at one of the high schools here in Columbus, if you're a graduate student, I want you to understand that what you're doing matters working matters because matter matters and God says cultivate this good world that I made and do it well and do it to my glory so what you're studying whether it's biology whatever it is you can do it and you can do it well and you can understand that it matters and we at Hope actually want to come alongside you and answer the specific questions you might be asking how does it matter and we love that question we love that question And we will wrestle that question with you. Work matters. But the second thing Genesis teaches us is that your work's going to be really, really crappy at times. Or maybe all the time. Who's who's like really just experiencing the brokenness of the world in their arena of work right now? Relationally. Just the slog of it. Dissatisfaction. doesn't line up with what you feel gifted in wasn't what you expected. Maybe there's straight up lying and deception and abuse. So work is frustrating. Well, again, the script that we're given in Eden says, do not be surprised if work is terrible because this world is falling. And now there's sweat on the brow. Sweat on the brow is the image we get in Genesis 3. What was meant to just be life-giving is now a struggle with us. And I would just say this quickly last. Uh, Genesis has a script to tell you you're meant to rest also. By the way. Think about this. Who's receiving the book of Genesis for the first time? People who never had rest in their work. And so when God himself rests on the seventh day and says you do likewise, that is a liberation. That is a freedom. Now listen, do you view rest that way? I mean, we ought to take an hour in our day, we ought to take a day in our week, probably take a week in our month, probably take a month in our year to rest. And the, the, the script out there is going to say, don't be there. That reduces productivity, all these things. Gratefully, the script is changing, actually. People are recognizing burnout. But God said it first. You know, like I say at Hope, I love it when research catches up to the point. You need Genesis if you're frustrated at work. I'll say this too. You need Genesis if you're lonely in this city. Uh, because it tells you that you're made in God's image. God is trained in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are made for relationship. We're made for Him. We're made, therefore, for others. And so if you're hungry for connection, if you feel lonely, that's because the script says you were made for it. And it can only be found in the Lord so if you're here because you're hungry for community, I just want you to see that that's exactly on point. That is so good. And so life-giving. But that's not all. I would actually say, too, that Genesis's unflinchingness about humanity's propensity to mess things up. I'm quoting from Francis Buffer, the English author. Humans have a propensity to mess things up. Well, that propensity actually helps us and is perhaps a surprising avenue to connection as well, if you're feeling lonely. What do I mean? Well, author David Zoll says that we will miss out on connection when we pretend that life is okay. Think on that for just a second. We will miss out on connection if we live life pretending that everything is okay. I love what Elizabeth said. Life is hard in this fallen world, and by her admission, that is hard. How many of you felt connected? How many, how many of you could take a breath maybe for the first time in the week? Okay, there's somebody else who is having a hard time. That is amazing. Now listen, that is exactly unscathed with Genesis. Genesis is unflinching about how hard life can be because it has a high view of the fall. has a high view of sin. has a high view of our propensity to mess things up. This all says... When we ignore that, it is actually a recipe for isolation. And he's right, because what do you do with your hidden addictions? What do you do with your regrettable decisions? What do you do with your personal injustices? Who do you share them with? And you become more and more and more and more isolated. How can you be truly seen in love if you're pretending everything is okay? The doctrine of sin actually tells us, and as strangely opens up for us, a whole world of connection and being known, where we can be honest with one another. Which takes me to the last suggestion for you all. If you're feeling unloved and maybe even unlovable at this moment in your life, Genesis is about one thing and one thing only. And if you take one takeaway from this script, I want it to be this God is tenacious in fulfilling his promise to redeem, to rescue, and to bring you to himself. He will chase down his people. He's going to rescue the whole creation. He will use you with your story to share the news. If there's one massive takeaway from Genesis, let it be this. That God somehow delights in reversing human expectations in order to accomplish his surprising will. Which is to rescue his people, to bring him glory. And to give you joy. This is just one example in the life of Abraham, and it'll be the way that we close. God has Abraham cut a covenant. In the ancient Near East, what they would do is they would actually cut an animal in half. It was an ancient practice that showed you really the severity of a promise, the heaviness of a promise. You would cut the animal in half, and you would walk through it, and walking through it would be a sort of an active, an active promise of saying, if I don't fulfill my part of this promise... Or if you don't fulfill this part of this promise, may we be like these animals. It's a serious, serious saying to break your covenant, to break your promise. And so God has Abraham cut a covenant, which is this ancient practice, as we said. And then what happens in the book of Genesis is that Abraham is asked to sit out and God himself walks through himself. God runs through the animals and God is telling Abraham, I'm going to make my promise and it will happen. And when you don't do your part, not if, I'll take the hit. And he does in Jesus. That's his tenacious love. If you're feeling unlovable, can you just watch God go through the animals right now, this morning? and going to lead you to the cross of Jesus. And would you see the love of God, the very heart of God in the cross for you? Jesus, we ask that you would do that. Wherever we are, we ask the Lord that this script would call us. It's a better script than all the scripts of the world that could offer, because it's the true script of the world. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such a privilege. Be rescued by you. To make much of you. To this day we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.